Chapter Twenty of the Princess and Curdie by George MacDonald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Counterplotting. Curdie was already sufficiently enlightened as to how things were going, to see that he must have the princess of one mind with him, and they must work together. It was clear that amongst those about the king there was a plot against him. For one thing, they had agreed in a lie concerning himself. And it was plain also that the doctor was working out a design against the health and reason of his majesty, rendering the question of his life a matter of little moment. It was in itself sufficient to justify the worst fears that the people outside the palace were ignorant of his majesty's condition. He believed those inside it also, the butler excepted, were ignorant of it as well. Doubtless, his majesty's counsellors desired to alienate the hearts of his subjects from their sovereign. Curdie's idea was that they intended to kill the king, marry the princess to one of themselves, and found a new dynasty. But whatever their purpose, there was treason in the palace of the worst sort. They were making and keeping the king incapable, in order to effect that purpose. The first thing to be seen to, therefore, was. That his majesty should neither eat morsel nor drink drop of anything prepared for him in the palace. Could this have been managed without the princess, Curdie would have preferred leaving her in ignorance of the horrors from which he sought to deliver her. He feared also the danger of her knowledge betraying itself to the evil eyes about her, but it must be risked, and she had always been a wise child. Another thing was clear to him, that with such traitors. No terms of honor were either binding or possible, and that, short of lying, he might use any means to foil them. And he could not doubt that the old princess had sent him expressly to frustrate their plans. While he stood thinking thus with himself, the princess was earnestly watching the king with looks of childish love and womanly tenderness that went to Curdie's heart. Now and then, with a great fan of peacock feathers. She would fan him very softly. Now and then, seeing a cloud beginning to gather upon the sky of his sleeping face, she would climb upon the bed, and bending to his ear, whisper into it, then draw back and watch again, generally to see the cloud disperse. In his deepest slumber, the soul of the king lay open to the voice of his child, and that voice had power either to change the aspect of his visions, or, which was better still. To breathe hope into his heart, and courage to endure them. Curdie came near and softly called her. I can't leave Papa just yet," she returned in a low voice. "I will wait," said Curdie, "but I want very much to say something." In a few minutes she came to him where he stood under the lamp. "Well, Curdie, what is it?" she said. "Princess," he replied. I want to tell you that I have found why your grandmother sent me. Come this way, then," she answered, "where I can see the face of my king." Curdie placed a chair for her in the spot she chose, where she would be near enough to mark any slightest change on her father's countenance, yet where their low-voiced talk would not disturb him. There he sat down beside her and told her all the story, how her grandmother had sent her good pigeon for him, and how she had instructed him. And sent him there without telling him what he had to do. Then he told her what he had discovered of the state of things generally in Gwynstorm, 
and specially what he had heard and seen in the palace that night. "'Things are in a bad state enough,' he said in conclusion. "'Lying and selfishness, and inhospitality and dishonesty everywhere. "'And to crown it all, they speak with disrespect of the good king, "'and not a man of them knows he is ill.' "'You frighten me dreadfully,' said Irene, trembling. "'You must be brave for your king's sake,' said Curdie. "'Indeed I will.' she replied, and turned a long, loving look upon the beautiful face of her father. "'But what is to be done? And how am I to believe such horrible things of Dr. Kelman?' "'My dear princess,' replied Curdie, "'you know nothing of him but his face and his tongue, and they are both false. Either you must beware of him, or you must doubt your grandmother and me, for I tell you, by the gift she gave me of testing hands, that this man is a snake. That round body he shows is but the case of a serpent. Perhaps the creature lies there, as in its nest, coiled round and round inside. Horrible, said Irene. Horrible indeed, but we must not try to get rid of horrible things by refusing to look at them, and saying they are not there. Is not your beautiful father sleeping better since he had the wine? Yes, "'Does he always sleep better after having it?' "'She reflected an instant. "'No, always worse till to-night,' she answered. "'Then remember, that was the wine I got him, "'not what the butler drew. "'Nothing that passes through any hand in the house "'except yours or mine must henceforth, till he is well, "'reach his majesty's lips.' "'But how, dear Curdie,' said the princess, almost crying, "'That we must contrive,' answered Curdie. "'I know how to take care of the wine, but for his food, now we must think.' "'He takes hardly any,' said the princess, with a pathetic shake of her little head, which Curdie had almost learned to look for. "'The more need,' he replied, "'there should be no poison in it.' Irene shuddered. "'As soon as he has honest food he will begin to grow better.' "'And you must be just as careful with yourself, princess,' Curdie went on, "'for you don't know when they may begin to poison you, too.' "'There's no fear of me. Don't talk about me,' said Irene. "'The good food. How are we to get it, Curdie? That is the whole question.' "'I am thinking hard,' answered Curdie. "'The good food? Let me see. Let me see. Such servants as I saw below are sure to have the best of everything for themselves.' I will go and see what I can find on their supper-table. The Chancellor sleeps in the house, and he and the master of the king's horse always have their supper together in a room off the great hall, to the right as you go down the stair, said Irene. I would go with you, but I dare not leave my father. Alas, he scarcely ever takes more than a mouthful. I can't think how he lives. And the very thing he would like, and often asks for, a bit of bread— I can hardly ever get for him. Dr. Kelman has forbidden it, and says it is nothing less than poison to him. Bread, at least, he shall have, said Curdie, and that, with the honest wine, will do as well as anything I do believe. I will go at once and look for some. But I want you to see Lena first, and know her, lest, coming upon her by accident at any time, you should be frightened. I should like much to see her, said the princess. Warning her not to be startled by her ugliness, he went to the door and called her. 
she entered, creeping with downcast head and dragging her tail over the floor behind her. Curdie watched the princess as the frightful creature came nearer and nearer. One shudder went from head to foot of her, and next instant she stepped to meet her. Lena dropped flat on the floor and covered her face with her two big paws. It went to the heart of the princess. In a moment she was on her knees beside her, stroking her ugly head and patting her all over. "'Good dog! Dear ugly dog!' she said. Lena whimpered. "'I believe,' said Curdie, "'from what your grandmother told me, "'that Lena is a woman, and that she was naughty, "'but is now growing good.' Lena had lifted her head while Irene was caressing her. Now she dropped it again between her paws, but the princess took it in her hands and kissed the forehead betwixt the gold-green eyes. "'Shall I take her with me, or leave her?' asked Curdie. "'Leave her, poor dear,' said Irene, and Curdie, knowing the way now, went without her. He took his way first to the room the princess had spoken of, and there also were the remains of supper— but neither there nor in the kitchen could he find a scrap of plain, wholesome-looking bread. So he returned and told her that, as soon as it was light, he would go into the city for some, and asked her for a handkerchief to tie it in. If he could not bring it himself, he would send it by Lena, who could keep out of sight better than he, and as soon as all was quiet at night, he would come to her again. He also asked her to tell the king that he was in the house— his hope lay in the fact that bakers everywhere go to work early, but it was yet much too early. So he persuaded the princess to lie down, promising to call her if the king should stir. End of chapter 20 Recording by Hannah Mary